Well, one of the greatest cherished blessings that we have had in our lifetime has been religious liberty. Great Britain has not always been a paragon of virtue in this area. And when I think just how wonderfully some of the earlier members of the nonconformist church were to stand for religious liberty. The Baptists did a wonderful job in this country during the reign of the Stuart Kings. I don't think any group did a greater work than the Baptists. And uh, the records of their writings, especially between about 1614 and 1660s, after Charles II had assumed the throne, are really some of the most powerful writings you could ever read. Um, I'll never forget the Baptist, I've forgotten his name, but he, he gave 70 reasons why the king should give religious freedom. Now, I could think of quite a few, but 70 is quite a challenge. Now, maybe he didn't think of them all himself. They may have been ones that had gathered over a period of decades. But uh, whatever, it was a wonderful thing to have these 70. You know, um, Russell and I wrote that book, Liberty in the Balance, and that's all in there. And uh, you think of the, the stand that um, John Bunyan took for religious freedom. And the experience of William Penn. How many are familiar with what happened to William Penn here in England? Not many of us. What's that? No. William Penn. Thank you very much. William Penn was charged with two serious counts in 1670. The first account was that he had preached without permission from the Anglican Church. The second one was just as serious, that he had preached doctrine contrary to the Anglican Church. Now, he could have spent the rest of his life in jail for that. How many remembered how he was saved? How was he saved? I'm sorry? No. Well, he did go to America very quickly after the trial. When... The case was a cut-and-dry case. He was guilty of both charges, by the way. Remember that William Penn was a Quaker. So he wasn't going to preach the same message as the Anglicans. And he certainly didn't have permission. He'd broken the Conventicle Act, which said that no one could preach without permission of the Anglican Church. Now, at least John Bunyan hadn't broken the second part of it. 
He didn't preach something contrary to the Anglican Church, but he did preach without permission of the Anglican Church. And you remember, the judge tried to release him. It was a minimum seven-year sentence. Minimum. But John Bunyan refused to accept the greatest mercy than any judge. You don't think a 17th century judge is being merciful, do you? But there was at least one merciful judge in the, seven, uh, in the 17th century here in Bedford. And the judge said to him, Mr. Bunyan, don't you have a blind two-year-old daughter? Yes, Your Honor. Well, just sign this paper. You'll not do it again and we'll forget you ever did. Now, that was a very kind judge. But Bunyan couldn't sign that paper because he knew that religious freedom did not allow him not to continue to preach. And he said, Your Honor, I do intend to preach again. And then the judge went the ultimate. He said, well, Mr. Bunyan, I have friends in high places in the Anglican Church. I will obtain for you permission. Wouldn't you say God and the Holy Spirit were working? Wouldn't you rejoice? But Bunyan understood true religious liberty. And he said, Your Honor, I can't allow you to do that because that would show that I believe the Anglican Church had the right to decide who would preach and who would not. And he, went to, he ended up spending about 12 years in jail, but how God blessed him in those 12 years. I wonder if we have that understanding of religious liberty. You know, this man... I think I, if I hadn't thought of this, I would have said, thank you, Lord, and we'd had a praise sermon that I can preach. I've got a license to preach from the Anglican Church. That's not freedom. The next man mightn't have a compassionate judge. If those men hadn't stood up, we wouldn't have some of the uh, freedoms in this country that we have today. It takes men to understand completely the situation. Now with Penn, the judge knew and the prosecution, it was a shut, and ca uh, shut case and it was just going to be, they gave them 15 minutes to bring in their, their verdict. Can you imagine that? That's how shut and closed the case was. And the judge became very agitated when an hour and a half later, the jury hadn't returned. But what had happened? Eight of the jurors voted for conviction. That would probably put him away for life, which meant for death too, because a life sentence in those days, rarely did people survive it. But four jurors refused to convict him. And they were led by a, a man of great wealth. He was a shipping magnate here in Britain. He had merchant ships. His name was Edward Bushel. Do no, only a few know Edward Bushel? I tell you, every Seventh-day Adventist should know that name. That man was courageous. And the judge was so infuriated 
that he put those four jurors in prison till they woke up and found them guilty. And they spent nine weeks in prison. It's chained like this. I don't have to tell you the mess they were in from excretion. Then they starved them. They held them back on water. They did everything they could think of to mate, make these men, these four men, change their verdict to guilty. But they refused. Bushel said, my liberty is not for sale. He would rather suffer, and the other three did too. I don't know the name of the other three, but the leader of them was this Edward Bushel. He's an Englishman that deserves a great honour in this country. In the end, the judge had to give up and Penn was released in the course. He made a very quick exit from England. And of course, the rest is history. I wonder if we'd be willing to do that to save another man. We wouldn't have had the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Remember, Pennsylvania is one of the four commonwealths in the United States. There are 46 states and four commonwealths. The commonwealths are Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, Virginia, and Kentucky, so we're in a commonwealth. Sounds sort of British, doesn't it? <laughs> the commonwealth of Virginia. But Pennsylvania is another commonwealth. Please don't rush me with what the difference is. But um, four courageous men changed the course of history nor whether there'd be in a city called Philadelphia. Oh, there'd be some occupation of that area, of course. But history was changed by four courageous men here in England. The other eight just went along with the judge and the prosecutor. If you haven't read that book, Liberty in the Balance, you, you'll find that a fascinating. The first man, you read about John James, John James was the man who was preaching in the outskirts of London, 1661, on, the Sabbath, on a Sabbath afternoon to a little Sabbatarian group. And the sheriff and his assistant burst in and demanded he stop preaching in the name of the king. Of course, that was a recently reinstated monarchy under Charles II. He refused to stop. He was taken to prison the next day charged with treason against Charles II. No efforts would save his life and he was hanged, drawn and quartered. His head placed outside, where, opposite where he preached and the four quarters of his body placed elsewhere to remind people they better obey the new king. 
course, there's a lot of suspicion because many were still favorable to the Commonwealth in those days of, uh, uh, that had been instituted by Cromwell. <coughs> and then you trace the history of Adventism. You know it started in this country? Do you realize that the Seventh-day Adventist belief, at least the Seventh-day part of it, started here in England? Most Englishmen don't know that. But Stephen Munford was an Englishman. He was a Sabbath keeper. And in 1664, three years after the execution of uh, John James, he decided to go to freedom. wasn't very comfortable to be a Sabbath keeper in England in those days. But he knew there was only one colony he could go to that would give him the freedom to be so unique. Anyone know which colony that was? Rhode Island. Who was the great hero of Roger Williams? You know, that's another man that, that we must admire. He started a colony where there was truly religious freedom. And that's where Stephen Mumford went. And he took the Sabbath message for the very first time. To the United States, well, to the colonies. They weren't the United States then. The 13 colonies. Well, at least he took it to Rhode Island. And he had Sabbath. He won people to the Sabbath truth. He kept a record of it. How many attended his meetings, home meetings? And when they accepted the Sabbath, eventually they be, it developed into the Seventh-day Baptist church. Not in his lifetime. And you remember a Seventh-day Baptist challenged Frederick Wheeler after he'd preached that powerful law on keeping the uh, uh, sermon on keeping the law of God there in Washington, New Hampshire. Who was sitting there in that congregation? Rachel, Rachel Preston Oaks. And she was a Seventh-day Baptist and she challenged him after that service. Why wasn't he keeping all the commandments? Now many ministers would have thrown that away, wouldn't they? Said, oh, I can't put up with this aggressive woman. But not Frederick Wheeler. Wheeler went home and studied it all that week. And the next Sunday declared that was the last Sunday meeting that would be held there. The next week they would be coming together on God's holy Sabbath day. And we sometimes look upon that as the first Seventh-day Adventist church because he was an Adventist. This was a, a Millerite Adventist church before ever James and Ella White were Seventh-day Adventists before Joseph Bates was a Seventh-day Adventist, before J.N. Andrews was a Seventh-day Adventist, this started. And so we can trace it back. You know, it's not hard to trace that history. I, I'm sure you're like me. You love at least history that deals with the things that are gone. I hear some people say, oh, I hated history at school. 
Well, you might have, but you better know a little bit of history in terms of the things of God, at least. Now, I believe March 13 to 16, Liberty was on trial in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. It was in the court, but religious liberty. A people that have stood so firmly for religious liberty. Now, I had those who believed that I was very unwise to give testimony in that trial. As one man said, a prominent self-supporting ministry leader, he said, Colin was foolish to do that. It will hurt Hartland's ministry. We're not there to uphold Hartland's ministry. The Lord has looked after it for 17 years. He can look after it as long as he needs it. Amen. It's a strange way we still think, even in self-supporting work, or some people think. You do what's right, and you leave the rest to the Lord. Amen. That's the issue. And I can't emphasize that more. Do what is right, and leave the rest up to the Lord. You don't have the Lord's blessing if you do what is wrong. That's not a good alternative. And if we hold our peace in a time of spiritual crisis, the Lord counts that as treason. But I tell you, it was the hardest thing I ever had to do in my life. I never dreamt one day I'd be standing in a court giving testimony against the leadership of this church. Can you imagine it? It's shocking. Now, the Bible has much to say about liberty. It has much to say about freedom. It has much to say about persecution. We talked a little today. But let's take a text that sets our real focus, Second um, Corinthians chapter 3 <clears throat> and verse 17. Let us realize what liberty truly is. Now the Lord is that spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is what? Liberty. Liberty. You realize you could be in a dungeon, in a prison, you could be captured and uh, held in stocks or whatever, handcuffed, but if you have the Spirit of the Lord, you're a free man. You've got liberty. The people that don't have liberty are the people that are in sin. And yet we should work for the liberty of men and women. Not only ourselves. Listen, you don't believe in religious liberty if you're only concerned about your own liberty. There's no way. Someone was asking last night about um, the, the statement that was made, and it was made by Pastor Nehemiah, the Lutheran pastor who suffered so much during the Second World War under Hitler. And it was that statement that I'm sure we've all heard. I can't remember it all. But when my brother and I were teenagers, Pastor Nehemiah came to Australia, giving meetings all over Australia, 
standing up on this issue of religious liberty and why he stood against Hitler and the Nazis during the Second World War. It's a miracle he didn't lose his life because others did. And he made that famous speech and he gave it there that night. It was held in the, the Newcastle Boxing Stadium. Only time I've ever been there. My dad wasn't in the habit of taking us to the boxing stadium, I can assure you. But he decided to take Russell I to that meeting. He felt we needed to be there. And we went and we were excited. You know, we were inspired is perhaps a better word that night. But then he spoke as he did so many times, obviously wherever he went around Australia and other parts of the world, you know the story. They came for the communists, but I wasn't a communist. They came for the trade unionists, but I wasn't a trade unionist. They came for the Jews, but I wasn't a Jew. They came for the gypsies, and I wasn't a gypsy. And there were some others that I can't remember now. But then they came for me, and there was no one to stand up for me. You know, we can sit back and say, well, that's too bad what they're doing to the Jehovah's Witnesses, or that's too bad what they're doing to the Muslims or someone like that. It doesn't even have to be a Christian. We have to stand for everyone's religious liberty. Do what we can. We can't, may not be able to do a lot. But I write letters. When I see something in the newspaper... You know, when I read not too long ago, was it last year or was it just the year before, about what was happening in Malaysia, your homeland, with Prime Minister Mattia. And they were putting more and more restrictions on the Muslims, forbidding them to convert to any other faith. It's already been tough for them. So I write, wrote to the Prime Minister. I sent a copy to the President of the United States. I sent a copy to the majority and minority leaders in both the Senate and the House. And I sent a copy to the Secretary General of the United Nations. Now, the United Nations is supposed to uphold the freedom of, of religion and change of religion. That's in the Charter. And I said, here is a country that's violating that, yet it is a member nation of the United Nations. Now, I have no truck for the United Nations. I know it's going to be the enforcer. But interestingly enough, the only reply I got was from the office of the Secretary General of the United Nations, basically saying they would look into the matter. Never had another word from them. No one from the United States Congress responded. Of course, Malaysian officials didn't respond. But at least you do something. I wrote to the president of France and did get a letter from him, or at least not from him, but one of the officials, just an acknowledgement letter. But at least you do something. And we need to do something in our church and outside our church. I've written to to Yeltsin in, in the Soviet Union over the persecution there. And I've written to the Prime Minister of Singapore over the treatment of the Jehovah's Witnesses. 
even if I disagreed wholly with the position of Rafael Perez, which I do not, but even if I did, I'd be willing to stand up for his freedom. Even if I didn't believe what he said, if I were asked to go to court, I would stand up. Every man has a God-given right to his religious convictions, whether I agree with them or not. I was subpoenaed. Of course, I suppose I could have put that subpoena aside. And I think if I'd have asked them, they would have withdrawn the subpoena. They weren't trying to force someone that would get into trouble if they didn't come. But I felt that I had a responsibility under God. Now, it was difficult because there are my brethren on one side and I'm on the other side of the case. It's a difficult situation. And we didn't know when we would be called up. It was difficult and it was once you were a, um, a witness to give evidence in the trial, you couldn't stay in the courtroom. So I didn't hear any of the prosecution case. I heard about it, but I didn't hear it. Of course, I've read it now. I've got the full transcript back at home of the trial. So I know what was said, every word that was said. I know that not every word that was said was recorded accurately because I found a few, not many, but a few errors in my testimony. Obviously, the court reporter hadn't understood what I said and put another word than the word that I'd used. But she did a remarkable job nevertheless. Now, let me say this. Judge King, James Lawrence King, is one of the most respected judges, federal judges, in the United States. A man of outstanding record, known as a very impartial judge, not influenced by politics, as many judges are today in the United States. And I can say this, he conducted the trial in the most, almost perfectly. Never raised his voice, never, always was kind and respectful to everyone, but he was in charge. When Mr. Persius, the attorney, the lead attorney for the Eternal Gospel Church, made a statement that warmed the hearts of the perhaps 60 or so people that were in that courtroom, almost all favorable to, of course, the Eternal Gospel Church, many of the members of it, there was a great amen that went up. Even some people that should have known better. I won't mention any names. <laughs> I froze and Russell froze because we knew that was anathema in a courtroom. But the judge just said very calmly, now I know some of you people are very much interested in this case. But there are ways we conduct a trial and it doesn't allow for support or opposition to anything that is said in this courtroom. Now we want you to stay 
but if this were to continue, I'd have no alternative but to ask the Marshal to remove you. Only once again did I ever hear an Amen. One person during my testimony said Amen. The judge didn't react to it, but I saw Mr. Persius going like this behind his back. But there were plenty of people there telling this person, don't do that again. <laughs> of course, um, at Judge King, the building where the court room was on the 11th floor is named after Judge James Lawrence King. So you can tell, there's a big photo of him as you walk into the foyer. You can tell you he's, it's unusual for a sitting judge to have a building called after him. But that's how respected he is. So you can understand how important has been his judgment. I can understand that even if it went to a um, appeals court, which may well do, It'd be very hard for appeal judges to overturn a Judge King decision. The prestige of the man is so great. In fact, in the opening submissions, he had to stop the court because he had a call from Judge uh, Ruth Ginsburg from the Supreme Court, and she was there to tell him he'd won one of the highest awards possible for his service as a judge. That stopped proceedings for three quarters of an hour. So you can understand he's not a amateur judge. Any federal judge is not an amateur, but he's 30, served 37 years on the bench. He's 72 years of age. And all I can do is speak very well of him, the way he conducted that trial. But I'm devastated by the decision. In my thoughts, I never dreamt it would come out that badly. And I'm going to tell you why I think it came out badly. I believe Judge King did what he thought was right. But according to our lawyers, he's a Roman Catholic. And the way the General Conference case was presented, it would be hard for him not to put some personal um, values into the decision. Very difficult. I mean, when Mr. Two, Jeffrey Two, the attorney for the General Conference, in his opening submission, referred to this, th this group as a hate group or the, it was considered by the Seventh-day Adventist Church to be a hate group. That was devastating. A hate group because they were running ads and they were giving radio broadcasts against the Roman Catholic Church. What would you feel if you were a Roman Catholic judge? No, they were absolute lies. I think of Rafael Perez. Last year his mother, whom he loved very dearly and was probably the closest son to his mother, died a Roman Catholic. Do you think he hated his mother? 
I know the many times that I spoke to him about his mother when she was dying, he was greatly, um, what shall I say, attached to his mother. No question about that. And of course he's got a cousin who was a bishop back in the Dominican Republic. A Roman Catholic bishop. And he's got others in his extended family that are priests and nuns. But he's been brought out of darkness into the marvellous light of the Seventh-day Adventist faith. And he's got a burden. You know, some of the people with the greatest burden are those that were once Roman Catholics. Because they're just so thankful to be brought out of Catholicism and its deceptions into the marvellous light of the Seventh-day Adventist faith. Unbeknownst to me, on that first morning, before we were excused from the trial because we were witnesses, we were able to listen to the opening submissions. Sitting next to me was the reporter for Associated Press, the Miami office of Associated Press. I didn't know who she was until the opening submissions had finished and she turned to me and she identified herself. Gave me her name, Catherine Wilson. And she said, I'm a reporter for Associated Press. Who was that woman that Mr. Persius was talking about? I said, Ellen White. Oh, so she wrote it down. Then Russell and I had the opportunity of talking a little about it to her. But she put on that, oh, spread all over the world, this issue of a hate group. Next morning it was in the Miami Herald and in as far as the uh, it, down in Australia in the Mem Melbourne Herald Sun. Once these uh, wire services, I don't know whether they're still wire, I don't know what they do these days, but anyway these news services put something on, it can be picked up by anyone all over the world that is a subscriber to the Associated Press or whatever the actual um, uh, wire service, it might be Reuters or one of the others, you know. And then she wrote other things. After the decision of the trial, this is what was on the web, by the way it was in many of the papers, this is written April 27. 10.53 a.m. it was posted at 9, uh, p.m. rather, at 9. And she, she had finished, and it was put on the web. And amongst many other things that she wrote here, she says, the denomination obtained a trademark on the name in 1980. There actually it was 1981. And Perez formed his congregation in 91. He was not ordained to the church and his church was denied admission to Seventh-day Adventist conferences because of his refusal to stop anti-Catholic broadcasts. And then she said, the denomination considers Perez's church a hate group for denouncing Catholics for worshipping on Sunday and likening them to Satanists and pagans. That was sent all around the world. This is just the web copy of what Catherine Wilson, this woman that I sat next to. Now, what would a judge think? What would you expect would happen under those circumstances? 
be pretty hard on a judge, wouldn't it? Now I want to read in his 18-page judgment. By the way, we've got some of those here. I want you to get an idea of what this judge said. I'm reading from um, point 16. There's much, many other things, but I can only bring a little bit of it here. Defendant Rafael Perez was a member of a Seventh-day Adventist Church of Plaintiff, that means of the General Conference, in West Palm Beach, Florida. He, along with approximately 40 to 50 other members, left Plaintiff Seventh-day Adventist Church in West Palm Beach, Florida in 1991 to form his own church, the Defendant's Church. During 1991 and 92, Perez attempted to gain admission for Defendant's Church into Plaintiff's Southeastern Conference of Seventh-day Adventists. That's a regional conference that takes in Florida and a bit more of the southeastern part of the United States. <clears throat> and, of course, that's, so it's always called SE, SEC after it. So when I read SEC, you'll know it means the Southeastern Regional Conference of Seventh-day Adventists. During, um, uh, and the Defendant's Church was attempting to join the SEC, the defendant Perez operated the defendant's church using the plaintiff's name, Seventh-day Adventist, and plaintiff's Ackerman SDA in connection with radio broadcasts in Florida. In 1992, of the SEC told Perez that he would not be able to gain admission into the SEC unless he ceased his radio broadcast criticizing the Catholic Church. You see, this came out in the opinion. Now, the issue was had nothing to do with those ads, supposedly. All it had to do with whether they could use the name Seventh-day Adventist. But you can see how they played it up to the judge. Perez refused to agree to this condition of admission and was denied admission to plaintiff's SEC. Perez then attempted to join the Florida Conference. That's, of course, the White Conference another conference of plaintiff general conference. He and his church were again denied admission due to his refusal to stop the anti-Catholic radio broadcasts. You see, the judge took very great note of those issues. Anti-Catholic, Roman Catholic. Now, in the judgment, I want you to see how broad the judge's judgment was in 14, um, paragraph 14 of the judgment. The plaintiff's registration, this is the trademark, covers, now look what the, he said that covers. Now what's this going to mean to us in our publications, in what we put out, in what we run, what we operate. I want you to see how comprehensive the judge's decision was. The lawyers for the Eternal Gospel Church did a magnificent job. I don't want you to think they did a poor job. They did the finest job imaginable. You know, you can always say they should have raised this issue or that issue. But I tell you, it was a very strong and very 
well-prepared defense. As you know, both of them were Jews, brought up as Orthodox Jews. So I think they're Reformed Jews today from what they told us. And after the judgment came out, Mr. Persius told uh, Pastor Perez that in all his 22 years as a defense lawyer, he's never been identified himself so closely with a case as this case. You know, the Jews know what persecution is, don't they? They've been through it. And even if they haven't been through it themselves, they know all about it. And I could tell he put his heart and soul into this case. He was just as devastated as we were by the judgment. He said he'd thought of many scenarios that the judge could come up with, but in his wildest nightmares, he hadn't thought it would be this bad. He's very anxious to challenge the, uh, the, the um, trademark, straight up. But anyway, this is um, the things that the judge said are covered by this decision. You can't use the name Seventh-day Adventist unless you are authorised by the General Conference Corporation. Religious books, magazines, pamphlets, newsletters, brochures, encyclopedias, dictionaries, commentaries, flyers, bulletins, yearbooks, booklets and Bibles. For the establishment and administration of employee health care and benefit programs and medical assurance, insurance programs for educational institutions and educational instruction services in academies at grade school, high school and college level, for film production and distribution services, for health care services, namely hospitals, pharmaceutical, nursing home and medical laboratory services and for conducting religious observances and missionary services, church services, namely rendering ministerial and religious counselling services. Now, you could hardly get much more than that, could you? That's what he said is covered by this decision. That's very serious. So that means nobody could write a book mentioning Seventh-day Well, that's what the lawyers have been trying to find out really how far the judge means this to take it. You certainly can't put the name Seventh-day Adventist as the author, I mean, you know, or, or the... Um, you couldn't put in published by the Eternal Gospel Church of Seventh-day Adventists or by the Gaisley Fellowship of Seventh-day Adventists or anything like that. Um, in paragraph 20, he now looks at how the defendant has used this name and of course this is all taboo. It says the defendant has used plaintiff's mark, that means Seventh-day Adventist, in connection with churches, church services, religious services and observances, church signs, newspapers, flyers, billboards and audio tape recording and on radio broadcasts. The defendant's church is listed in the section of Seventh-day Adventist churches in the West Palm Beach telephone directory. That's got to be removed. Under the... Now... Let's look at the name Seventh-day Adventist 
It was hardly used before 1860. There are a few extant evidences of the name, but by far the most common name had Church of God in it, of those believers, those Seventh-day Adventist believers. To their great um, um, uh, liking, the General Conference brought all this forward. The name really was nothing until 19, 1860. But of course, 1860 was before the first conference was established in 1861, the Michigan Conference. But that didn't seem to move the judge at all. We were amazed that the judge used this $27,000 survey. They got a professional survey company um, to go on the streets and ask people what they thought the name Seventh-day Adventist meant. They were looking for a church or an organization or something. Persia's absolutely destroyed that evidence. You read the, the testimony. I mean, he showed how biased that was. You know, it started off by talking about the survey, the question had in it, um, what kind of an organization? Well, once you say that, you're, not, you're closing the door to people thinking, is it a faith? Is it a religion? Persia's absolutely destroyed that evidence. You read the, the testimony. I mean, he showed how biased that was. You know, it started off by talking about the survey, the question had in it, um, what kind of an organization? Well, once you say that, you're, not, you're closing the door to people thinking, is it a faith? Is it a religion? It's an organization. That means uh, some kind of structure, some kind of church or something, uh, name. And yet the judge shocked me by taking that very seriously in his, his decision. I thought I would have been embarrassed to use that evidence. Persius was brilliant in his destroying of that survey evidence. But the judge took it and used it. Interestingly enough, of all the witnesses, I'm the only name that the judge used And of course, he used it on the side of the defense, of the plaintiff. It was when the judge asked me if you looked at one of these churches, and it has up there Seventh day Adventists, how would you tell that it was not a general conference church? Well, I explained to the judge the people just don't normally walk in off the street. They come because they've been to meetings or a crusade or Bible studies or they're a neighbor or a relative and they would know before they came there. I also explained uh, to the judge that if you didn't know in, in very short time, you would know that it was a self-supporting, not a general conference church if you walked into the church. 
But of course, I couldn't say if you just see a name up, the West Palm Beach Seventh day Adventist Church, whether it was denominational or self supporting. That would have been dishonest to say anything else. You can't tell if it's just a name like that. But that was um, brought into the decision. Not that I think it would have made any difference. I've thought of all the other things that could have been said or done, but I don't think it would have changed the judge's decision. The thing that devastated Russell and myself and some of the others, although most of the people there didn't understand what was going on, was when in the final summation, um, Attorney 2 invokes Smith versus the State of Oregon. I mentioned a little bit last night about it. All Russell and I could do was look in horror at each other the moment he started. You imagine taking the general, uh, the Supreme Court decision, or opinion as it's called, but it's a decision, that robbed Americans of the First Amendment protection and using that in a trial. Can you imagine the Seventh-day Adventist Church doing that? But that's what, was, what that was done. Now, I'm not saying this for us to get riled up or angry. I feel sorry for these brethren. I pray for them. Because I know eternity hangs in the balance. You can't violate the plainest words of inspiration on this. And I just trace back the history. How did it start? The persecution of Christian on Christian persecution didn't start right away. In fact, it didn't really start until pagan on Christian persecution stopped. It's interesting. While ever there was pagan persecution of Christians, there was not Christian persecution of Christians. But almost immediately or within decades of the Constantine situation that stopped persecution of Christians, then there was Christian upon Christian persecution. Until eventually, of course, they were burning people at the stake. They were beheading them. They were doing all sorts of wicked acts eventually to the terrible cruelties of torture to get confessions. There's only one direction that we can go from here, and that's to more and more use of the state to enforce the edicts of the church. But I want to tell you the rest of the story. How many of you are familiar with Paul Harvey in America that has his rest of the story? Well, you'd be, yes. You know, Paul Harvey is perhaps one of the most respected. He must be 80 now. I don't know. He's a very old man now. But um, he's still got his daily news broadcast and he has his uniqueness, page one, page two, page three, page four. But he also has another program which he calls The Rest of the Story and he brings back some wonderful, interesting events that have happened in the past and he gives, fills in the rest of the story that most people wouldn't know anything about. Well, there's a rest of the story to this trial, brethren and sisters. How did we get to this place? Well, I called up a friend of mine, a just as devastated 
by this action. For 16 years he served in the General Conference, most of those years as a uh, departmental leader in the General Conference. But it wouldn't be fair to him for me to name him. But he has written a letter of protest to the General Conference President. He's not done, sat down and done nothing. He's retired now, of course. And I said to him, you were there. Obviously, you were in the General Conference when the trademark had to be voted by ADCOM of the General Conference. He said, I remember it very well. And so I took down notes, as he told me. And I've written it up. It will be in the Remnant Herald. I've sent it to my brother for the Remnant Herald sometime in the future, maybe August or something, you know, it takes a while to get in. But in 1979, the Kinship Group, how many are not familiar with who the Kinship Seventh-day Adventist group is? They're the homosexual Seventh-day Adventists. That's their organisation. Isn't that a shocking... <laughs> Now these, these are people who are advocating that homosexuals should not be barred from membership of the cell. I'm talking about practicing. Well, there's all, there's, you know, we talk about non-practicing homosexuals. Listen, if you're not practicing, you're not a homosexual. You don't say, I don't go around and say, I'm a non-practicing adulterer. Do you? I don't... That would that doesn't make sense. And if you're not practicing uh, wrong, you're not practicing wrong. So um, it all started. There was a demonstration at the general conference by a group of kinship supporters, placarding and shouting for freedom and so on. This general conference man went out to talk with them. This is 1979. It was during the annual council. He said there's a chance it might have been 78, but he believes it was 79. So if someone tells you it was 78, that might be right, but it was either of those two dates, but probably 79. And he said he found them absolutely impossible to talk to. So it was a very bad demonstration. I was at the General Conference Annual Council when the women's ordination group placarded it. I tell you, they're activists for the wrong cause. And that got the brethren riled up, of course. We've got to do something about this kinship group. And someone got the bright idea that we'll trademark our name and then we can stop them using Kinship Seventh-day Adventist International or whatever they call themselves. Well, that got a lot of opposition in ADCOM. There were a lot of members of ADCOM at that time that didn't like the idea. But eventually they were sold that the only way they could ever get through and to control these kinship. Now listen, I hate to think that people that are practicing homosexuals call, call themselves Seventh-day Adventists. 
But there are things we can do. We can disfellowship them, can't we? As it proved in the trial with the kinship, most of them were still members of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Someone was not... I don't mean in, in hatred. It must be a dreadful thing to be tempted in homosexuality. A lot worse than being tempted in heterosexuality of the wrong kind. But brethren and sisters, if we peel and we try to help them and there's no change and they're determined to carry on and they're advocating that this does not exclude or should not exclude someone from the fellowship of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, that's a different matter. Just like we would put an adulterer sure we used to that doesn't mean they can't be recovered it doesn't mean that the love of God cannot heal them and restore them in true forgiveness not at all but it does mean that they cannot hold a, uh, any place in, in church fellowship membership of the church Well, eventually they said that would be the only reason they would use it to, to do something about these. They, the only reason they'd use the trademark. But once it was passed, if you know anything about the history of the trademark, you know they didn't go after the kinship first. And I pointed that out to my friend, but I said they didn't go after kinship first. They went after a little tiny group led by Merrick, dear and John Merrick. Do any of you remember that name? Over in Hawaii. A group of 13 believers. Now, I, I ask you, how much damage could they do to the Seventh-day Adventist Church? They knew that, it was, I call it, a cowardly act to go after a little defenseless group that was poor. And I said, why did they do it? Oh, he said, they said they'd have an easier chance with the kinship if they had a precedent, a legal precedent. You know, the law often is argued on precedent. So they started with this poor little defenseless group. I tell you, when he told me that, I, I could hardly restrain my feelings of, of consternation. Well, you know, Mary couldn't even afford a, a lawyer. Well, try and win a case in an American court without a lawyer. If you win it, it's a rarity. In fact, I haven't heard of any. I just talked to a woman last week that was going to jail on Wednesday. She tried to defend herself. She got a year in jail in Los Angeles County. The poor soul, it was, a, oh, it was one of the most agonizing times I had with her. She is by background Hungarian-Romanian, woman 51 years of age, and she had decided she was going to commit suicide. I'm so glad she came to me. And she'd already decided how she was going, as soon as she got into jail, she was going to commit suicide. 
a Seventh-day Adventist. She is so distraught over the situation because she suffers terribly from cloisterphobia. She just can't think of getting into one of those little prison cells. I tell you, I've been praying for that woman. She said, I tell you, you're going to be lost eternally if you commit suicide. No, I wouldn't be lost. I'm not killing anyone. I said, you're killing yourself. She said her plan was to get there, and I pray to God she hasn't carried this out. I think I got through to her. We had earnest prayer together. I had others with her. Her plan was to get in there, get toilet paper, stuff it up her nostrils, bowl it up in her mouth and suffocate herself to death. Pitiful. <coughs> the poor soul didn't have the money to fight the case. Bought against her by a dentist where she was asking them to refund some of the $130,000 she'd paid out in dental work. And they charged her with harassment. Well, you need a pretty good lawyer when you're getting charged that way. And the judge gave her a year in prison. If you think the laws are going to be, be helpers, the law is going to help us at the end of time. That's going to be a rare thing. We're not going to make it. If we're even trying to identify the Roman Catholic Church, the Protestants are against us. The whole ecumenical world is against us. And that won't only be Christian world. That will include the Hindus and the Muslims and the Shintoists and the Taoists and all the other forms of religion on this planet. Well, as you know, they won the Merrick case, but it was appealed and others got into it then when they heard about it. You know, this was nothing like this had happened before and they got into it. Other people got into it. And they were going to make a good appeal to the Californian, whichever circuit court, uh, federal circuit court it was. But then, uh, tragically, Merrick fell into sin and it all collapsed. Well, you remember in the kinship case, they lost it. partially on the grounds that these were all members of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And secondly, they presented themselves as a help group for homosexuals. Well, they were helping all right. And the judge ruled in their favour. And now the kinship have a, a law... On the, you know, it's worse than it ever was with the kinship group. But you know, there's a lot more favourableness to homosexual rights than there are to religious rights. By the way, Persius said, look, they lost the case over there in California and now they think they can come here to Florida and try and win a case, but it didn't help. The judge ruled as he did. I want to assure you that the situation in that, that hall was, there's no question the Holy Spirit came into that, that courtroom. There wasn't a person sitting there that didn't recognize it. 
And I just had the privilege of being in there when the Holy Spirit was manifested. It was one of the most dramatic moments I've ever had in my life. And the judge's words showed that the Holy Spirit was speaking to him at that point. You know, we were outside. We'd been called suddenly. We were told we wouldn't be on till Wednesday. And suddenly the, uh, the plaintiff case was being wrapped up by lunchtime Tuesday. I had, I was, my plan was to really hone in on my likely testimony on Tuesday afternoon, you know, as close to, and suddenly we got to, you got to come over here. We, that was a difficult thing. We didn't know who was going to be called as first. And then they said, well, we're going to call um, Clark Floyd first. Well, I thought I still had time because the night before, the lawyers had gone over testimony with Russell and myself. And they chose to, to question and go over testimony with Russell first and with me second. And I was convinced they were going to take Russell in first and I would come in after that. Well, it didn't happen that way. It didn't happen that way. They called me first, but Clark went in and after about 25 minutes, he was through. And a woman, a West Indian woman that attends the Perez Church, you remember, that's a bilingual church. There, so every sermon is in, in Spanish and English, either translated one way or the other, depending upon the speaker. And a lot of those who are English-speaking are West Indian. There are some whites. There are a few of other races, um, some Hispanics that's not Hispanics, I mean some, um, a couple of Asians and so on, but, and there's some American black too. It's a mixed congregation. And she came out and she was so distressed. Here I'm about to go in and she cries out, oh, they've just shredded Elder Floyd. You imagine what that did when you're just going in. Oh, all I could do was offer a silent prayer. I thought, Clark is a trained lawyer. He's been a defence lawyer. What hope have I got? I tell you, you've got to lean upon the Lord under those circumstances. I had no idea what she meant because I had to go straight in. All I got was that, oh, if only she'd wait till I got inside to tell the others. But you know, the Lord sustained. I just prayed, Lord, help me not to say one thing out of place. But then immediately I started to realize what the whole idea was, you know, because they had put uh, Russell and myself up as expert witnesses. Now, you've got to be grilled. What makes you an expert witness? And I learned... The grillings are much harder today because the Supreme Court has sent word down to the lower courts to not make it so easy for expert witnesses to give their testimony. In other words, you've got to prove beyond doubt. 
And here it was, of course, Perseus went through. It's a bit embarrassing what you've done. They try to make it sound so so um, outstanding and they put the best case forward. But when Mr. Two got up, he objected to me being an expert witness. But, of course, first he grilled me. <clears throat> he said... You have a major at the undergraduate level in, and there's a slight pause, and I caught the meaning of it, in psychology. Now, I'm being put up as a history, church history and um, theologian, which was ridiculous, but I mean, that's... Now... Well, I said, I also have a major in history. I knew that I had to start saying something. Do you have a graduate degree in history? No. I soon found I was saying yes to the wrong questions and no to the wrong questions. Your master's is in psychology? Yes. I wish I could have said no. Your doctorate is in psychology? Yes. You have another master's in education? And all I could say was with an emphasis in history of education. I had to say something. I mean, truthful, of course. You can't tell lies, but I mean, truthful. And then he said... Um, what degrees do you have in theology? None. How many historical societies do you belong to? None. How many theological societies do you belong to? None. And there are other questions I was, it was going on like that. I realized what had happened to Clark Floyd. Intuitively, I now knew why they'd shredded him. I imagine myself walking out of that box, giving no testimony at all. I didn't know that at least I could have given ordinary testimony. But when you are an expert witness, you can give opinions. You can't give that. You can only give facts. And, of course, that's what happened to Clark Floyd, and it just dissolved. It was a... I could feel the tension amongst the people, the faithful people there, because they'd already been through what happened. They saw me being shredded too. I didn't try to hesitate. I gave the answers, but I knew what it meant. And Mr. Two then said, I object to this man being an expert witness. And then the judge turned to me and he said, I understand you've written 32 books because that had been brought out by um, our lawyer. Well, I said in... Uh, 
collaboration with my brother. He said, can you tell me what some of these books are about? I knew this was the Holy Spirit giving me one last chance. And I started off, interesting enough, I don't know why, with Adventism Challenged, the history of deviant movements within the Seventh-day Adventist Church. That's how I put it to him. And I talked of sacrificial priest, the great central pillar of the Adventist faith, the sanctuary message, and I was thrilled to know that a number of the young men here that have read that book found it so helpful to them in understanding the sanctuary message. In fact, one of the young men from London told me that he couldn't understand that message. He'd read a number of other books until he read that book, The Sacrificial Priest, or what is that? was the old name he mentioned, Adventism Unveiled, but it's the same book. And I went through about six of our books, always picking ones that were doctrinal or dealt with it. And then the judge said, um, objection overruled. And for a moment I didn't know what he was saying, but really what he was saying, he's going to allow me to give testimony. You've got no idea the relief, but now the pressure was on again. So firstly, Mr. Persius, of course, gave his questions, and they were friendly questions. But I kept saying, what's this two going to come up with? But he objected a number of times and the judge always overruled he, uh, ruled the objections of Mr. Two. And then the judge almost took over the trial. He started, we had, as they, uh, people said later, it seemed like your old friends meeting together and having a conversation. It didn't happen to any other witness. And I know the judge was moved. I felt so relaxed before I'd finished the hour and a half in the box. You know, an hour and a half is a long time to be in the box. If, you, if, if you've given testimony, it's not a, a few moments. I've given testimony before in four other cases, but short testimony, nothing more than quarter of an hour. Most of them less than quarter of an hour. I think one went about a quarter of an hour and the other's more like ten minutes. But this was different. And I could see people praying in the pews and I could see their faces starting to relax because I was between swiveling this way to the judge and the lawyers could do nothing. You know, once the judge decides to take over, the lawyer that's questioning you stands there and the, the defence or the pro plaintiff lawyer sitting there and he can't stop the judge and neither can the defence lawyer, the judge is in control. We had three of those kind of talks together and I said, you know, it does seem that there has not been any testimony about self-supporting ministries within the Seventh-day Adventist Church and I said, Your Honour, uh, I would like to say a little about it with your permission. He didn't say a word, so I went on with it, which indicated he wasn't objecting to me saying anything. And I tell you, all the de defence witnesses use the Bible, use the Bible, the spirit of prophecy. We noted that this was the name God had given and this is why it's so cherished. The judge had to hear all that. He heard it all. And others in the courtroom.
whatever they think they heard the message but it didn't come you know when L, uh, dr george reed the head of the biblical research institution was put up as a expert witness he could say that he had four degrees in theology he could report that he could read seven different languages I'm limited to English. He could point out that he was a member of four theological societies. The judge had no trouble in declaring he was an expert witness. That's the kind of differences you got there. And you know, that's when the judge said, um, isn't there something in the Bible that said you shouldn't take someone to law? The Holy Spirit was moving. I said, yes, Your Honour, it's 1 Corinthians 6, 1 to 9. And then he said, really, I shouldn't be the one making this decision. Isn't it possible? He says, just a suggestion. Isn't it possible to get together and try again to work this out? I believe that was the high point of the trial and I just feel privileged that I was part of that high point of that trial. I believe the Holy Spirit was working upon the judge. He said, but if you can't come to agreement, with God's help I'll try to make a judgment, never dreaming how bad that judgment would be. And we did have that meeting for an hour plus there was the two lawyers for Perez. There was Perez himself. There was one of his elders, Andy Raman, and Russell and myself. And the four lawyers representing the general conference. Mr. Two, the, head, the, the lead lawyer, Mr. Ramick. By the way, Ramick is not a practicing Catholic. Um, there's a lot of material being sent out on it and started with the, the Review and Herald, by the way. But Ramick told one of the people there, and I talked to Bob Nixon, and he gave me virtually the same story quite independently, that he was brought up a Roman Catholic. He married a Baptist, and the, the priest wouldn't marry them. So he became angry and left the Roman Catholic Church. His daughter was baptised, meaning sprinkled, in the Presbyterian Church. He's a man that um, told told Perseus, uh, no, told um, uh, Brother Person that he attends church, but he's got no affiliation with any church I think it may be the Presbyterian church but anyway that's beside the point Jeffrey too the lead lawyer is a Southern Baptist we tried to reason with him in that dialogue about the Baptists he should understand that more than anyone and of course Robert Nixon the head of um, legal services for the general conference the lead counsel and and Walter Carson, the other general conference, they're both Seventh-day Adventists, of course. And partway through, 
somehow two said he was a Southern Baptist. So a little later I brought him back to it. I said, uh, Mr. Two, did you say you were a Southern Baptist? He said, yes. Well, I said, how do you explain, explain that? And then Russell came in and together we asked him. And he said, well, that's our name. That's like Seventh-day Adventist, Southern Baptist. And Russell said, now, wait a minute. Before ever there was a Southern Baptist, there were Baptists in the United States. And we mentioned the Free Will Baptists. We mentioned the Liberty Baptists. We mentioned the Particular Baptists. We mentioned the American Baptists. We mentioned the Strict Baptists and so on. I, the name Seventh-day Adventist is equal to Baptist in terms of the name. Well, he said, Seventh-day Adventists have a different idea about it than Baptists do. That was the best answer he could give. But he would, they were offered that they would call themselves um, Seventh, I mean, Eternal Gospel Church of Self-Supporting Seventh-day Adventists or Eternal Gospel Church of Seventh-day Adventists not affiliated with the General Conference of Seventh-day Adventists, but they would have nothing of that. Why don't you call yourself Sabbath? Eternal Gospel Church of Sabbath Keepers. Why do you think they couldn't call themselves that? Today, the first... I'm going to read some of that tomorrow called Sunday Sabbath. In, the, in Dies Domini, the Pope calls Sunday Sabbath. So what does Sabbath mean? The real issue is God gave a seventh day and there's a reason for that because that makes it very plain. God didn't give us the name um, Sabbath Adventist. And how wise God was. Seventh day. Well, brethren and sisters, with that understanding, we are in a difficult situation. I believe there will be, they will go further and further and further using the law. And they've found the way to get the law on their side, just to clear people that identify the Roman Catholic Church or the papacy as the Antichrist and their hate groups. And who's going to support a hate group? What judge is going to support a hate group? It's a very serious time. This is the beginning. It's not the end of the road. And our brethren are going to go on. You know, texts were read, and I'll just finish on these texts. You might like to look. There are numbers of texts, but <clears throat> I'll just read two passages that some of you are probably familiar with, but John chapter 12 <clears throat> verse 47 and 48 and if any man hear my words and believe not I judge him not for I came not to judge the world but to save the world and let me go to the next point verse 48 he that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words hath one that judgeth him the words that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. Listen, 
God, uh, Jesus said, look, if we reject Jesus or if we do these things, we're going to be judged, all of us. Anyone that names the name Seventh-day Adventist is going to be judged at the end of time, whether he has held it in honour to God or whether he's disgraced the name. It is a holy, sacred responsibility to accept the name Seventh-day Adventist. God's faithful people will hold that name in righteousness. And the other text in Luke 9. You know, this was read to the brethren. But I tell you, it seemed as if it wasn't in the Bible. Luke 9, 49 and 50, a familiar passage too. And John answered and said, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name. What was the issue? They were misusing the name of Christ, of Jesus. And we forbade him, because he followeth not with us. And Jesus said unto him, Forbid him not, for he that is not against us is for us. That should have been enough never to take a brother to court. Beside, of course, 1 Corinthians 6, 1 to 9. And when the servant of the Lord says that those who take their brethren to court, their prayers will not be heard and they'll be counted as unbelievers. What a condemnation. By the way, in one of the statements, there is a little hope. But if you go back, just read Third Selector Messages, um, 399 to 405, or is it 299 no, 299 to 305? 299 to 305. There's all those statements about taking your brother to court. It's a law. But they say Perez is not our brother. He's not our brother. But they seem to find brotherhood with other people. A little bit of encouragement. I had a pastor call me. I won't even say the conference. That's not fair to him. But from a large conference in the United States. I'd never heard of him before. But he said to me, I'm calling you to encourage you. There are some of us here in this conference who agree exactly with your position. Other pastors. We're not all supporting what the General Conference has done. He said, I was uh, brought up a Roman Catholic till I was 28 years of age when I heard this message in 1979. And I trained for the ministry and I've been a minister ever since. And they're telling us that we're not to talk about the mark of the beast or the Antichrist. But he said, I cannot follow that instruction because I love the Roman Catholics and I have to go out and bring them into the light that God has shown to me. I said, I hope there's many more pastors that feel that way. Another pastor from another conference, also a sizable conference, he sent me what he'd put inserted in the church bulletin, four-page insert. All how wrong it was to take brethren to court. So there are pastors that are rising up. Four other pastors have spoken to me verbally that they cannot understand how the General Conference... So don't think that all are 
are favouring what's happened in the General Conference. And I believe you'll find in the General Conference itself there'll be some that will not follow in that ways. Now, I have brought here... To, maybe you could bring those up to me, and I'll just very briefly, because I know it's getting late, as briefly as I can. Let me just say that we've bought videos here. They're in the PAL formation. This is the video, and it's available. Report the General Conference of Seventh-day Adventist versus Raphael. This is a one-hour, 50-minute report that Russell and I gave straight after the trial, while it was fresh in our minds, of what had happened and what the backgrounds were. That will be very helpful to you in sharing. And, 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 and the second is... The report on the General Conference of SDA's ad hoc committee reviews of Hope International Heartland Institute and Remnant Ministries. I haven't had a chance to talk about that here. By the way, if you want the trials, the full judge's decision, that's it. There. And a couple of books. Remember I mentioned how important it is to read these educational books. There's quite a few copies here of Adventism Imperiled. That's a book that every Seventh-day Adventist, I believe, needs to read in the light of what we need to be encouraging our young people to do. That's a book I mentioned earlier, The Pope's Letter and Sunday Laws with the 81 identifications. There's, I think, two or three copies there of that book, I think. By the way, I think that I only saw one copy of Liberty in the Balance, unless you've got some elsewhere. Just one. So, um, here's one of our real problems. All the spiritualism in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. But this will be the book that we will really be a blessing to you. Adventism Proclaimed, the Four Angels' Messages. You know, up to his dying days, my dad felt that was the most important book we'd ever written. And uh, that means a lot to us. He really loved that book, because he loved the three angels' messages. 